We continue our sermon series in the book of Matthew. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, we'll be in verses 1 to 21. Uh, there's also in our church app, there's a sermon listening guide. The scripture is printed there, uh, and it'll also be behind me on the screen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Father, this is your word. It is powerful. It's designed to go to the very core of our being, the core of our heart, and convict us and change us and comfort us. Father, we pray that your word would do that very thing in our hearts today. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. On January 15th, 2009, flight 1549 departed New York City's LaGuardia Airport. Pretty quickly, it ran into a flock of geese. Both engines went out and Captain Sully Sullenberg landed that plane safely on the chilly, frigid waters of the Hudson River. 
Everyone was gotten off the plane. Sully, Captain Sully was the last one off. And before he walked off that plane, he walked through the plane two times to make sure that no one was left on that plane. Fast forward almost exactly three years later. On January 13th, 2012, a massive Italian cruise ship named the Costa Concordia crashed into rocks and started to sink. There was chaos. The investigation afterwards found that the captain of that ship, Francesco Chatino, was trying to impress a young female dancer at the time and allowed the ship to veer too closely to the rocks. In the midst of the chaos, Captain Chatino got into a lifeboat and got out before the rest of the people, 4,000 passengers on this cruise ship got out. He claimed that the ship had been listing to its side and that he fell into a lifeboat. The courts didn't buy it. He was convicted of manslaughter and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Two very different types of authority. One authority that saved lives and brought life, and the other authority that stole life. As we get to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, we begin to see that there is a clash of authority. That Jesus' authority is clashing with the authority of the Pharisees. And the people are experiencing two very different types of authority, and it's providing and producing a very different experience for these people. And that's what authority does. You can discern the authority of Jesus from other authorities by what it produces. There is a, an authority like that of the Pharisees that brings condemnation. There's an authority like that of Jesus that brings flourishing. Let's begin with that type of authority that brings condemnation. Two encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees on the Sabbath day are going to draw this out. The first encounter is Jesus walking with his disciples through the grain fields, and they're hungry. And so they pick heads of grain and they eat. Verse two, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, 
Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They were wrong. They were imposing their authority on the Sabbath and usurping God's authority and design for that day. And Jesus points out their error by giving two examples in the Old Testament. The first is in verses three to four. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus is referring to 1 Samuel chapter 21, when David and his men went into the house of God and they ate the holy bread. Now, Leviticus 24 tells us that that bread for others. But what we see here is the scripture that the Pharisees relied on, the very scripture did not condemn David and his men. That David did not break the Sabbath. That he was not guilty. The need to satisfy hunger set aside this divine regulation, and it set it aside without blame. It's the how much more argument that Jesus is using here, right? How much more should the hunger of Jesus' disciples set aside a rule that was created by the rabbis and the Pharisees? And in this encounter, Jesus gives a second example from the Old Testament in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Right? This is from Numbers chapter 28, where it said that priests were to sacrifice two lambs in the temple on the Sabbath. The priests were to work and do their activities on the Sabbath. And they were guiltless. They weren't to blame. The priests were not violating the Sabbath. Temple service took precedent over Sabbath observance. And again, Jesus is using the lesser to greater argument here. He says, someone greater than the temple is here. Then we arrive at the second encounter Jesus had with the Pharisees. He goes into their synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are just chomping at the bit because they are going to find him, put him in a trap. They're going to accuse him. So they say to Jesus in verses 11 to 12, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Now here's the question. Why is Jesus so concerned with the authority that the Pharisees are imposing on the Sabbath? Why is this so concerning to him? Verse seven. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse 12, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Do you see the contrast that's being set up in those two verses? Condemnation. 
versus doing good, flourishing. Jesus is setting up the different kinds of authority these people are under. The Pharisees are bringing an authority that is condemning people. Jesus is bringing an authority that is causing people to flourish. Condemnation versus flourishing. Pharisees had taken something good like the Sabbath. And they had turned it into an instrument to condemn people. The Sabbath had become an instrument to condemn rather than an instrument to bring mercy and care to people. Condemnation is the evidence that you are not functionally under the authority of Jesus. because condemnation does not come from Jesus. Now, you say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm experiencing condemnation? Because if we're talking about sin and brokenness here, there's another C word called conviction. How do I know the difference? How do I know if I'm experiencing condemnation versus conviction? Condemnation ultimately comes from the devil. Now, it can manifest through earthly authority, but condemnation comes from the devil. The scriptures speak of the devil as a liar, an accuser. He condemns. That's his native tongue. But how do you discern it? There's three telltale signs of condemnation. Three telltale signs that you're under condemnation. The first is that condemnation is hazy. And by that I mean that you feel like something's wrong with you, but you can't put your finger on it. You can't pinpoint it. You can't identify it. This ongoing shame that you're feeling You just can't identify exactly where it's coming from. Condemnation does not point you to Jesus and the gospel. Condemnation will point you back to yourself. And in the swirl of self, leave you with not being able to pinpoint where it's coming from. Condemnation is hazy. Second, condemnation is is hateful. It steals joy. It steals joy. It does not help you. It hurts you. It does not bless you. It it burdens you. Condemnation is like the spiritual version of waterboarding. Waterboarding is a type of torture where they immobilize the captive on a board, put a cloth over them, and then pour water over the cloth and over the breathing parts, mouth, nose, such that the the person captive on the board experiences the sensation of drowning. Condemnation 
drowns you and smothers any bit of God's goodness and love. It drowns you in your sin. So condemnation is hazy, it's hateful, and third, it's hopeless. It makes you think, I'm a lost cause. I'll be chained to my sins forever. I can never measure up. God doesn't care about me. The hopelessness of condemnation is encapsulated by Job's wife and what she says to him in his suffering. She says, curse God and die. It's hopeless. Let me give you a picture of what condemnation is like. Author and pastor Max Lucado, he tells the story of a man named Lee Fuyan. And Lee Fuyan had tried every treatment imaginable to ease his throbbing headaches, and nothing worked. So finally, they did an x-ray, and they found the culprit. A rusty four-inch knife blade was stuck in his skull. It had been there for four years. Four years earlier, he had been attacked in a robbery and he had suffered lacerations on his right jaw, he didn't realize that the, the knife blade broke off and was stuck in his skull. Condemnation brings pain. It brings depression. It brings hopelessness. And you can't pinpoint exactly where it's coming from. If you're experiencing condemnation, then you are under the authority of something or someone other than Jesus. And sometimes that authority, whether it's directly from the devil or whether it's indirectly from the devil through an earthly authority, sometimes that authority will use something good from God as an instrument to condemn you. Like the Pharisees used the Sabbath, something good from God, as an instrument to condemn people. Bible reading can be used as an instrument to condemn you if you're not reading your Bible enough. Prayer, gift from God, to hear from God, to speak to God, can be used as an instrument to condemn you if you're not praying enough. Even your beautiful story of redemption from a broken past, something good from God, can be used as an instrument to condemn you and make you feel horrible. That's how condemnation works. If you're experiencing condemnation, then you know that you're not functionally living under the authority of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' authority brings flourishing. Jesus' authority brings flourishing. 
Jesus heals this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And immediately the Pharisees plotted to murder him. Now, now that's ironic, isn't it? On the Sabbath day, they begin entertaining thoughts of killing Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus ordered them not to make him known because he was a different kind of authority than they expected. They were expecting a militaristic Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah that would look more like your stereotypical worldly leader. Impose your authority, crush those who disagree with you, show who's boss, get stuff done. That's what they expected. And Jesus said, don't, don't make me known because that's not the Messiah that I am. I have a different kind of authority. I have a different kind of authority. And he fulfilled prophecy to show that and to prove that. His authority brings flourishing. You say, well, what? What is his authority like? What characterizes Jesus' authority that brings flourishing? Well, first, his authority is just. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. End of verse 20, until he brings justice to victory. Justice, rightness. Jesus' authority is committed to making right all that sin has made wrong. Is that not a picture of flourishing? A world without sin, a life without sin. That's a picture of flourishing. That word for justice is also the word for judgment. Meaning that Jesus accomplishes justice through judgment. Judgment is the purging of sin that doesn't belong in his good world. And Jesus' justice is accomplished through two days of judgment in history. One has already happened, and the other is coming. The first day of judgment where justice was accomplished was nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. And it was on that day of judgment that Jesus removed the penalty of sin because he took the penalty of sin upon himself. The second day of judgment is coming when Jesus returns. And on that day of judgment, when Jesus returns, 
He will remove the presence of sin. Two days of judgment. One removed the penalty of sin and the one to come will remove the presence of sin. Jesus' authority is marked by just justice. He's just. You say, okay, well, we've got first coming, second coming. What about the in-between where you and I live? And this is where we see a second characteristic of Jesus' authority that is beautiful. Because his authority is just, he is patient. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That will not quarrel nor anyone hear his voice, that doesn't mean he's silent and passive. It means that he's gentle and he's humble. He's not brash and arrogant. Now let's start with the bruised reed. Let's start with the bruised reed. The most natural and efficient thing to do with a bruised reed is to get rid of it and put a new reed in place. That would be the easy, the quick, the efficient thing to do. Because a bruised reed, that, that signifies helplessness and weakness. Let's talk about the smoldering wick. A wick that's functioning imperfectly is a nuisance. A smoldering wick does not put out good light and it puts out smoke. You say that the, the most natural and easiest thing to do is to discard it and get a brand new wick that works. Easy, quick, efficient. And yet what we learn here from Jesus is that it takes time, it takes patience, it takes a willingness to take on pain to make anything useful out of a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. You and I, because of sin, are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And what that means is that Jesus committed to justice, removing the penalty of sin in the first day of judgment, removing the presence of sin in the second day of judgment, what that means is between the first and second coming in which you and I live and breathe is that Jesus is committed to progressively removing the power of sin in our lives. And he does that through his gentle, patient love. There's a, there's a beautiful picture of the patient love of Jesus. Happened a number of years ago in a baseball game between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Washington Nationals in the 2009 pennant race. Phillies fan Steve Montforto went to the game with his three-year-old daughter, Emily. And they were sitting in the upper deck on the first row. Foul ball comes curling 
up towards the upper deck and Steve Montforto leans over the railing and he catches his first ever foul ball. Every fan's dream. And he takes this foul ball and he hands it to little Emily. And little Emily takes it and throws it back over the railing down to the lower deck. The entire stadium gasps. All cameras on Steve Montforto. What is this father gonna do? He could have gotten mad at his three-year-old daughter. He could have been irritated with her. He could have condemned her for throwing away his first and ever foul ball that he caught at a baseball game. Instead, he wrapped her up and embraced her in his arms. And that is what Jesus does to you in your failure and in your sin. That is the patient, tender love of Jesus. He puts gifts in your hands that you could never catch for yourself. And you, maybe sometimes not even realizing it, throw those gifts away. And he responds by loving you again. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, but what about sin? What about sin? Does it matter? Jesus just loves us. What about sin? No, Jesus' authority is just. I mean, he's committed to removing sin. But the question becomes, how does Jesus remove sin in your life, give you increasing power over sin, and move you towards holiness? How does he do that? Romans chapter two says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It doesn't say God's condemnation leads us to repentance. It's this characteristic of Jesus' authority, this tenderness, this patience, this love that moves us away from sin and towards holiness. God doesn't condemn you into holiness. He loves you into holiness. He loves you into holiness. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. So back to the question about condemnation versus conviction. Condemnation is hazy, it's hateful, it's hopeless. Condemnation does not point you to Jesus or take you to Jesus in the gospel. It takes you deeper into yourself. 
and deeper into your guilt and deeper into your shame. Conviction points you to Jesus. So what sets conviction apart from condemnation? There's three telltale signs to conviction. Three telltale signs. First, conviction is not hazy. It's high definition clarity. What marks conviction is specificity. It will point you to something specific. It'll point you to the fact that maybe I shouldn't watch that TV show anymore because of the immodest content on it. Or maybe I should stop talking to that person about my friend and I should go directly to my friend to work out this conflict. Right? Conviction is specific, high definition clarity. Second, conviction is not hateful, but helpful and loving. God convicts you because he loves you. He convicts you because he loves you. It would be similar to you when you discipline your child, you do it out of delight for your child, out of wanting the best for your child, right? You do it out of love, and so it is with God. Conviction is a sign of his, listen to this, It's a sign of his love for you, not his disgust over you. When you are convicted by God, it's a sign of his love, not his disgust. Therefore, it leads to flourishing. And third, conviction is not hopeless. It's hopeful. Yes, it starts with godly sorrow. Yes, it starts with godly sorrow but that moves to repentance, which moves to joy. Because repentance is the pathway to joy, not condemnation. It's the pathway to joy. When Christ reminded Peter of his three denials in John chapter 21, he didn't remind him of his denials to crush him, to condemn him. No, he reminded him of his denials to restore him to move him to a place of joy and flourishing. And that's what conviction does. It's hopeful. It's the pathway to joy. So how do you experience life under the authority of Jesus? Jesus' authority brings flourishing. But here's the connection that you need to make. His authority brings flourishing. What you experience under your functional authority is what others will experience under your authority. Let me say that again. What you experience under your functional authority is what others will experience under your authority. If you are living underneath the just, patient love of Jesus' authority, then those under you, children, employees, students, players, will experience the patient, just, loving authority of Jesus under you. If you're experiencing condemnation underneath 
an authority other than Jesus, then people are gonna experience harshness and condemnation under your authority. That little three-year-old girl took that baseball and threw it back to the lower deck. And she was embraced by her father. You and I take the good gifts of our heavenly father and we throw them away all the time. And he embraces us in his love and in his forgiveness. When you are living underneath the just, patient, tender love of Jesus. Then you are empowered to tenderly and patiently love others when they throw your love away and when they throw gifts away. Because you have experienced the patient, tender love of Jesus then those under you begin to experience that patient, tender love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, so often, so often we live under condemnation. And, and we feel it. It is so hazy. It's so hateful. It's so hopeless. And yet you remind us today that condemnation does not come from your son, Jesus. But conviction does. Father, would you help us functionally day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, live under the just, patient, loving authority of Jesus and because of that, flourish. And as we flourish, and every person here is in some sort of authority place, whether it be teacher or coach, or boss at work, or parent. May those under our authority experience the just, patient, gentle, tender love of Jesus. And Father, when we are functionally living under condemnation from some other authority than your son Jesus, would your Holy Spirit be quick to move us away from that authority and back underneath the loving authority of Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.